Chapter Three of the Moon Maid by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter Three: Animals or Men. Of course, we did not reach all these conclusions in a few moments, but I have given them here merely as the outcome of our deductions following a considerable experience within the moon. Several miles from the ship rose foothills, which climbed picturesquely toward the cloudy heights of the loftier mountains behind them, and as we looked in the direction of these latter, and then out across the forest, there was appreciable to us a strangeness that at first we could not explain, but which we later discovered was due to the fact that there was no horizon, the distance that one could see being dependent solely upon one's power of vision. The general effect was of being in the bottom of a tremendous bowl, with sides so high that one might not see the top. The ground about us was covered with rank vegetation of pale hues, lavenders, violets, pinks, and yellows predominating. Pink grasses, which became distinctly flesh-color at maturity, grew in abundance, and the stalks of most of the flowering plants were of this same peculiar hue. The flowers themselves were often of highly complex form, of pale and delicate shades, of great size and rare beauty. There were low shrubs that bore a berry-like fruit, and many of the trees of the forest carried fruit of considerable size and of a variety of forms and colors. Norton and Jay were debating the possible edibility of some of these, but I gave orders that no one was to taste them until we had had an opportunity to learn by analysis or otherwise those varieties that were non-poisonous. There was aboard the Barsoom a small laboratory equipped especially for the purpose of analyzing the vegetable and mineral products of Mars according to earthly standards, as well as other means of conducting research work upon our sister planet. As we had sufficient food aboard for a period of fifteen years, there was no immediate necessity for eating any of the lunar food, but I was anxious to ascertain the chemical properties of the water since the manufacture of this necessity was slow, laborious, and expensive. I therefore instructed West to take a sample from the stream and subject it to laboratory tests, and the others I ordered below for sleep. They were rather more keen to set out upon a tour of exploration, nor could I blame them, but as none of us had slept for rather better than forty-eight hours, I considered it of importance that we recuperate our vital forces against whatever contingency might confront us in this unknown world. Here were air, water, and vegetation, the three prime requisites for the support of animal life, and so I judged it only reasonable to assume that animal life existed within the moon. If it did exist, it might be in some highly predatory form, against which it would tax our resources to the utmost to defend ourselves. I insisted, therefore, upon each of us obtaining his full quota of sleep before venturing from the safety of the Barsoom. We already had seen evidences of life of a low order, both reptile and insect, or perhaps it would be better to describe the latter as flying reptiles, as they later proved to be, toad-like creatures with the wings of bats that flitted among the fleshy boughs of the forest emitting plaintive cries. Upon the ground near the ship 
we had seen but a single creature, though the moving grasses had assured us that there were others there aplenty. The thing that we had seen had been plainly visible to us all, and may be best described as a five-foot snake with four frog-like legs and a flat head with a single eye in the center of the forehead. Its legs were very short, and as it moved along the ground it both wriggled like a true snake and scrambled with its four short legs. We watched it to the edge of the river and saw it dive in and disappear beneath the surface. "'Silly-looking beggar,' remarked Jay, "'and devilish unearthly.' "'I don't know about that,' I returned. "'He possessed nothing visible to us "'that we are not familiar with on earth. "'Possibly he was assembled "'after a slightly different plan "'from any earth creature. "'But aside from that he is familiar to us, "'even to his amphibious habits. "'And these flying toads, too, what of them? "'I see nothing particularly remarkable about them. "'We have just as strange forms on earth, "'though nothing precisely like these.' Mars, too, has forms of animal and vegetable life peculiar to herself, yet nothing the existence of which would be impossible upon Earth, and she has as well human forms almost identical with our own. You see what I am trying to suggest? Yes, sir, replied Jay, that there may be human life similar to our own within the moon. I see no reason to be surprised should we discover human beings here, I said nor would I be surprised to find a reasoning creature of some widely divergent form. I would be surprised, however, were we to find no form analogous to the human race of Earth. That is, a dominant race with well-developed reasoning faculties? asked Norton. Yes, and it is because of this possibility that we must have sleep and keep ourselves fit, since we may not know the disposition of these creatures, provided they exist nor the reception that they will accord us. And so, Mr. Norton, if you will get a receptacle and fetch some water from the stream, we will leave Mr. West on watch to make his analysis, and the rest of us will turn in. Norton went below and returned with a glass jar in which to carry the water, and the balance of us lined the rail with our service revolvers ready in the event of an emergency as he went over the side. None of us had walked more than a few steps since coming on deck after our landing. I had noticed a slightly peculiar sensation of buoyancy, but in view of the numerous other distractions had given it no consideration. As Norton reached the bottom of the ladder and set foot on lunar soil, I called to him to make haste. Just in front of him was a low bush, and beyond it lay the river, about thirty feet distant. In response to my command, he gave a slight leap to clear the bush, and to our amazement as well as to his own consternation, rose fully eighteen feet into the air, cleared a space of fully thirty-five feet, and lit in the river. Come, I said to the others, wishing them to follow me to Norton's aid, and sprang for the rail, but I was too impetuous. I never touched the rail, but cleared it by many feet, sailed over the intervening strip of land, and disappeared beneath the icy waters of the Lunar River. How deep it was I do not know, but at least it was over my head. I found myself in a sluggish yet powerful current, the water seeming to move much as a heavy oil moves to the gravity of earth. 
As I came to the surface, I saw Norton swimming strongly for the bank, and a second later, Jay emerged not far from me. I glanced quickly around for West, whom I immediately perceived was still on the deck of the Barsoom, where, of course, it was his duty to remain, since it was his watch. The moment that I realized that my companions were all safe, I could not repress a smile, and then Norton and Jay commenced to laugh, and we were still laughing when we pulled ourselves from the stream a short distance below the ship. "'Get your sample, Norton?' I asked. "'I still have the container, sir,' he replied, and indeed he had clung to it throughout his surprising adventure, as Jay and I fortunately had clung to our revolvers. Norton removed the cap from the bottle and dipped the latter into the stream. Then he looked up at me and smiled. I think we have beaten Mr. West to it, sir, he said. It seems like very good water, sir, and when I struck it I was so surprised that I must have swallowed at least a quart. I tested a bit of it myself, I replied. As far as we three are concerned, Mr. West's analysis will not interest us if he discovers that lunar water contains poisonous matter, but for his own protection we will let him proceed with his investigation. It is strange, sir, remarked Jay, that none of us thought of the natural effects of the lesser gravity of the moon. We have discussed the matter upon many occasions, as you will recall. Yet when we faced the actual condition, we gave it no consideration whatsoever. I am glad, remarked Norton, that I did not attempt to jump the river. I should have been going yet, probably landed on top of some mountain. As we approached the ship, I saw West awaiting us with a most serious and dignified mien. But when he saw that we were all laughing, he joined us, telling us after we reached the deck that he had never witnessed a more surprising or ludicrous sight in his life. We went below then, and after closing and securing the hatch, three of us repaired to our bunks, while West, with the sample of lunar water, went to the laboratory. I was very tired and slept soundly for some ten hours, for it was the middle of Norton's watch before I awoke. The only important entry upon the log since I had turned in was West's report of the results of his analysis of the water, which showed that it was not only perfectly safe for drinking purposes, but unusually pure, with an extremely low saline content. I had been up about a half hour when West came to me, saying that Orthus requested permission to speak to me. Twenty-four hours before, I had been fairly well determined to bring Orthus to trial and execute him immediately, but that had been when I had felt that we were all hopelessly doomed to death on his account. Now, however, with a habitable world beneath our feet, surrounded by conditions almost identical with those which existed upon Earth, our future looked less dark. And because of this, I found myself in a quandary as to what course of action to pursue in the matter of Orthus' punishment. That he deserved death, there was no question. But when men have faced death so closely and escaped, temporarily at least, I believe that they must look upon life as a most sacred thing and be less inclined to deny life to others. Be that as it may, the fact remains that Having sent for Orthus in compliance with his request, I received him in a mood of less stern and uncompromising justice than would have been the case twenty-four hours previous. 
when he had been brought to my stateroom and stood before me i asked him what he wished to say to me he was entirely sober now and bore himself with a certain dignity that was not untinged with humility i do not know what has occurred since i was put in irons as you have instructed the others not to speak to me or answer my questions i know of course however that the ship is at rest and that pure air is circulating through it and i have heard the hatch raised and footsteps upon the upper deck from the time that has elapsed since i was placed under arrest i know that the only planet upon which we have had time to make a landing is the moon and so i may guess that we are upon the surface of the moon i have had ample time to reflect upon my actions that i was intoxicated is of course no valid excuse and yet it is the only excuse that i have to offer i beg sir that you will accept the assurance of my sincere regret of the unforgivable things that i have done and that you will permit me to live and atone for my wrongdoings for if we are indeed upon the surface of the moon it may be that we can ill spare a single member of our small party i throw myself sir entirely upon your mercy but beg that you will give me another chance realizing my natural antipathy for the man and wishing most sincerely not to be influenced against him because of it i let his plea influence me against my better judgment with the result that i promised him that i would give the matter careful consideration discuss it with the others and be influenced largely by their decision i had him returned to his stateroom then and sent for the other members of the party with what fidelity my memory permitted i repeated to them in arthur's own words his request for mercy and now gentlemen i said i would like to have your opinions in the matter it is of as much moment to you as to me and under the peculiar circumstances in which we are placed i prefer insofar as possible to defer wherever i can to the judgment of the majority whatever my final action the responsibility will be mine i do not seek to divide that and it may be that i shall act contrary to the wishes of the majority in some matters but in this one i really wish to abide by your desires because of the personal antagonism that has existed between lieutenant commander orthus and myself since boyhood i knew that none of these men liked orthus yet i knew too that they would approach the matter in a spirit of justice tempered by mercy and so i was not at all surprised when one after another they assured me that they would be glad if i would give the man another opportunity again i sent for orthus and after explaining to him that inasmuch as he had given me his word to commit no disloyal act in the future i should place him on parole his eventual fate depending entirely upon his own conduct then had his irons removed and told him that he was to return to duty he seemed most grateful and assured us that we would never have cause to regret our decision would to god that instead of freeing him i had drawn my revolver and shot him through the heart we were all pretty well rested up by this time and i undertook to do a little exploring in the vicinity of the ship going out for a few hours each day with a single companion leaving the other three upon the ship i never went far afield at first confining myself 
to an area some five miles in diameter between the crater and the river. Upon both sides of the latter, below where the ship had landed, was a considerable extent of forest. I ventured into this upon several occasions, and once, just about time for us to return to the ship, I came upon a well-marked trail in the dust of which were the imprints of three-toed feet. Each day I set the extreme limit of time that I would absent myself from the ship with instructions that two of those remaining aboard should set out in search of me and my companion, should we be absent over the specified number of hours. Therefore I was unable to follow the trail the day upon which I discovered it, since we had scarcely more than enough time to make a brief examination of the tracks if we were to reach the ship within the limit I had allowed. It chanced that Norton was with me that day, and in his quiet way was much excited by our discovery. We were both positive that the tracks had been made by a four-footed animal, something that weighed between two hundred and fifty and three hundred pounds. How recently it had been used we could scarcely estimate, but the trail itself gave every indication of being a very old one. I was sorry that we had no time to pursue the animal which had made the tracks, but determined that upon the following day I should do so. We reached the ship and told the others what we had discovered. They were much interested, and many and varied were the conjectures as to the nature of the animals whose tracks we had seen. After Orthus had been released from arrest, Norton had asked permission to return to the former stateroom. I had granted his request, and the two had been very much together ever since. I could not understand Norton's apparent friendship for this man, and it almost made me doubt the young ensign. One day I was to learn the secret of this intimacy, but at the time I must confess that it puzzled me considerably and bothered me not a little, for I had taken a great liking to Norton, and disliked to see him so much in the company of a man of Orthus' character. Each of the men had now accompanied me on my short excursions of exploration, with the exception of Orthus. Inasmuch as his parole had fully reinstated him among us, in theory at least, I could not very well discriminate against him, and leave him, alone of all the others, aboard ship as I pursued my investigations of the surrounding country. The day following our discovery of the trail, I accordingly invited him to accompany me, and we set out early, each armed with a revolver and a rifle. I advised West, who automatically took command of the ship during my absence, that we might be gone considerably longer than usual, and that he was to feel no apprehension, and send out no relief party unless we should be gone a full twenty-four hours, as I wished to follow up the spoor we had discovered learn where the trail led, and have a look at the animal that had made it. I led the way directly to the spot at which we had found the trail, about four miles downriver from the ship, and apparently in the heart of dense forest. The flying toads darted from tree to tree about us, uttering their weird and plaintive cries, while upon several occasions, as in the past, we saw four-legged snakes, such as we had seen upon the day of our landing. Neither the toads nor the snakes bothered us, seeming only to wish to avoid us. Just before we came upon the trail, both Orthus and I thought we heard the sound of footsteps ahead of us, 
something similar to that made by a galloping animal and when we came upon the trail a moment later it was apparent to both of us that dust was hanging in the air and slowly settling on the vegetation nearby something therefore had passed over the trail but a minute or two before we arrived a brief examination of the spoor revealed the fact that it had been made by a three-toed animal whose direction of travel was to our right and toward the river, at this point some half-mile from us. I could not help but feel considerable inward excitement, and I was sorry that one of the others had not been with me, for I never felt perfectly at ease with all this. I had done considerable hunting in various parts of the world where wild game still exists, but I had never experienced such a thrill as I did at the moment that I undertook to stalk this unknown beast upon an unknown trail in an unknown world. Where the trail would lead me, what I should find upon it, I never knew from one step to another, and the lure of it because of that was tremendous. The fact that there were almost nine million square miles of this world for me to explore and that no earthman had ever before set foot upon an inch of it helped a great deal to compensate for the fact that i knew i could never return to my own earth again the trail led to the edge of the river which at this point was very wide and shallow upon the opposite shore i could see the trail again directly opposite and i knew therefore that this was a ford without hesitating i stepped into the river and as I did so, I glanced to my left to see stretching before me, as far as my eye could reach, a vast expanse of water. Here, then, I had stumbled upon the mouth of the river, and beyond, a lunar sea. The land upon the opposite side of the river was rolling and grass-covered, but in so far as I could see, almost treeless. As I turned my eyes from the sea back toward the opposite shore, I saw that which caused me to halt in my tracks, cock my rifle, and issue a cautious warning to Orthus for silence, for there before us, upon a knoll, stood a small, horse-like animal. It would have been a long shot, possibly five hundred yards, and I should have preferred to have come closer, but there was no chance to do that now, for we were in the middle of the river, in plain view of the animal, which stood there watching us intently. I had scarcely raised my rifle, however, ere it wheeled and disappeared over the edge of the knoll upon which it had been standing. "'What did it look like to you, Orthus?' I asked my companion. "'It was a good ways off,' he replied, and I only just got my binoculars on it as it disappeared, but I could have sworn that it wore a harness of some sort. It was about the size of a small pony, I should say, but it didn't have a pony's head. It appeared tailless to me, I remarked. I saw no tail, said Orthus, nor any ears or horns. It was a devilish funny-looking thing. I don't understand it. There was something about it, he paused. My God, sir, there was something about it that looked human. It gave me that same impression, too, Orthus, and I doubt if I should have fired had I been able to cover it. For just at the instant that I threw my rifle to my shoulder, I felt that same strange impression that you mentioned. There was something human about the thing. As we talked, we had been moving on across the ford, which we found an excellent one, the water at no time coming to our waists, while the current was scarcely appreciable. 
Finally, we stepped out on the opposite shore, and a moment later, far to the left, we caught another glimpse of the creature that we had previously seen. It stood upon a distant knoll, evidently watching us. Orthus and I raised our binoculars to our eyes almost simultaneously, and for a full minute we examined the thing as it stood there, neither of us speaking, and then we dropped our glasses and looked at each other. What do you make of it, sir? he asked. I shook my head. I don't know what to make of it, Orthus, I replied, but I should swear that I was looking straight into a human face, and yet the body was that of a quadruped. There can be no doubt of it, sir, he replied, and this time one could see the harness and the clothing quite plainly. It appears to have some sort of a weapon hanging at its left side. Did you notice it, sir? Yes, I noticed it, but I don't understand it. A moment longer we stood watching the creature, until it turned and galloped off, disappearing behind the knoll on which it had stood. We decided to follow the trail which led in a southerly direction, feeling reasonably assured that we were more likely to come in contact with the creature, or others similar to it, upon the trail than off of it. We had gone but a short distance when the trail approached the river again, which puzzled me at the time somewhat, as we had gone apparently directly away from the river since we had left the ford. But after we had gone some mile and a half, we found the explanation, since we came again to another ford, while on beyond we saw the river emptying into the sea, and realized that we had crossed an island lying in the mouth of the river. I was hesitating as to whether to make the crossing and continue along the trail, or to go back and search the island for the strange creature we had discovered. I rather hoped to capture it, but since I had finally described its human face, I had given up all intention of shooting it, unless I found that it would be necessary to do so in self-defense. As I stood there, rather undecided, our attention was attracted back to the island by a slight noise, and as we looked in the direction of the disturbance, we saw five of the creatures eyeing us from high land a quarter of a mile away. When they saw that they were discovered, they galloped boldly toward us. They had come a short distance only when they stopped again upon a high knoll and then one of them raised his face toward the sky and emitted a series of piercing howls. They then came on again toward us, nor did they pause until they were within fifty feet of us when they came to a sudden halt. End of chapter 3 Recording by Thomas Copeland